be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 5 to 6 of The Black Arrow, A Tale of Two Roses by Robert Louis Stevenson. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 5 Bloody as the Hunter The lads lay quiet till the last footstep had melted on the wind. Then they arose with many an ache, for they were weary with constraint, clambered through the ruins and recrossed the ditch upon the rafter. Matcham had picked up the windock and went first. Dick followed stiffly with his crossbow on his arm. And now, said Matcham, forth to Hollywood. To Hollywood, cried Dick, when good fellows stand shot. Not I, I would see you hanged first, Jack. Ye would leave me, would ye? Matcham asked. I, by my suit, returned Dick, and I be not in time to warn these lads. I will go die with them. What? Would ye have me leave my own men that I have lived among? I trow not. Give me my windock. But there was nothing further from Matcham's mind. Dick, he said, ye swear before the saints that ye would see me safe to Hollywood. Would ye be forsworn? Would you desert me, a perjurer? Nay, I swear for the best, returned Dickon. I meant it too, but now. But look ye, Jack, turn again with me. Let me but warn these men, and, if needs must, stand shot with them. Then shall all be clear, and I will on again to Hollywood and purge my oath. Ye but deride me, answered Matcham. These men ye go to scour are the same that hunt me to my ruin. Dick scratched his head. I cannot help it, Jack, he said. Here is no remedy. What would ye? Ye run no great peril, man. And these are in the way of death. Death, he added. Think of it. What a moraine do ye keep me here for? Give me the windock, St. George, shall they all die? Richard Shelton, said Matcham, looking him squarely in the face. 
Would ye, then, join party with Sir Daniel? Have ye not ears? Heard ye not this Ellis what he said? Or have ye no heart for your own kindly blood and the father that men slew? Harry Shelton, he said. And Sir Harry Shelton was your father as the sun shines in heaven. What would ye? Dick cried again. Would ye have me credit thieves? Nay, I have heard it before now, returned Matcham. The fame goeth currently. It was Sir Daniel slew him. He slew him under oath. In his own house he shed the innocent blood. Heaven wearies for the avenging aunt, and you, the man's son, ye go about to comfort and defend the murderer. Jack, cried the lad, I know not, it may be, what know I, but see here, this man hath bred me up and fostered me, and his men I have hunted with and played among, and to leave them in the hour of peril. Oh, if I did that, I was stark dead to honour. Nay, Jack, ye would not ask it, ye would not wish me to be base. But your father, Dick, said Matcham, somewhat wavering, your father, and your oath to me, ye took the saints to witness. My father, cried Shelton, nay, he would have had me go, if Sir Daniel slew him, when the hour comes this hand shall slay Sir Daniel, but neither him nor his will I desert in peril, and for mine oath, Good Jack, ye shall absolve me of it, for the lives' sake of many men that hurt you not, and for mine honour ye shall set me free. I, Dick, never, returned Matcham, and ye leave me, ye are forsworn, and so I shall declare it. My blood heats, said Dick. Give me the windock, give it me. I'll not, said Matcham. I'll save you in your teeth. Not, cried Dick. I'll make you. Try it, said the other. They stood, looking in each other's eyes, each ready for a spring. Then Dick leaped, and though Matcham turned instantly and fled, in two bounds he was overtaken. The windock was twisted from his grasp. He was thrown roughly to the ground, and Dick stood across him, flushed and menacing, with doubled fist. Matcham lay where he had fallen, with his face in the grass, not thinking of resistance. Dick bent his bow. I'll teach you, he cried fiercely. Oath or no oath, ye may go hang for me. 
and he turned and began to run. Matcham was on his feet at once and began running after him. What ye want? cried Dick, stopping. What make ye after me? Stand off. I will follow an I please, said Matcham. This wood is free to me. Stand back, by our lady, returned Dick, raising his bow. Ah, you're a brave boy, retorted Matcham. Shoot. Dick lowered his weapon in some confusion. See here, he said. You have done me ill enough. Go then. Go your way in fair wise, or, whether I will or not, I must even drive you to it. Well, said Matcham, doggedly, you're the stronger. Do your worst. I shall not leave to follow thee, Dick, unless thou makest me, he added. Dick was almost beside himself. It went against his heart to beat a creature so defenceless, and, for the life of him, he knew no other way to rid himself of this unwelcome and, as he began to think, perhaps untrue companion. You're mad, I think, he cried. Fool fellow, I am hasting to your foes, as fast as foot can carry me, go I thither. I care not, Dick, replied the lad. If you're bound to die, Dick, I'll die too. I would lever go with you to prison than to go free without you. Well, returned the other, I may stand no longer prating. Follow me, if ye must, but if ye play me false, it shall but little advance you, mark ye that, shalt have a quarrel in thine inwards, boy. So saying, Dick took once more to his heels, keeping in the margin of the thickest and looking briskly about him as he went. At a good pace he rattled out the dell, and came again into the more open quarters of the wood. To the left a little eminence appeared, spotted with golden gorse, and crowned with a black tuft of firs. I shall see from there, he thought, and struck from it across a healthy clearing. He had gone but a few yards when Matchen touched him on the arm and pointed. To the eastward of the summit there was a dip, and, as it were, a valley passing to the other side. The heath was not yet out. All the ground was rusty, like an unscoured buckler, and dotted sparingly with yews, and there, one following another, Dick saw half a score green jerkins mounting the ascent and marching at their head, 
conspicuous by his boar spear, Ellis Duckworth in person. One after another gained the top, showed for a moment against the sky, and then dipped upon the farther side until the last was gone. Dick looked at Matcham with a kindlier eye. So you're to be true to me, Jack, he asked. I thought you were of the other party. Matcham began to sob. What cheer, cried Dick. Now the saints behold us. Would ye snivel for a word? Ye hurt me, sobbed Matcham. Ye hurt me when you threw me down. Yar a coward to abuse your strength. Nay, that is fool's talk, said Dick roughly. Ye had no little to my windock, Master John. I would a done right to have well basted you. If ye go with me, ye must obey me, and so come. Matcham had half a thought to stay behind, but, seeing that Dick continued to scour full tilt towards the eminence, and not so much as looked across his shoulder, he soon thought better of that, and began to run in turn. But the ground was very difficult and steep. Dick had already a long start, and had, at any rate, the lighter heels, and he had long since come to the summit, crawled forward through the firs, and ensconced himself in a thick tuft of gauze before Matcham, panting like a deer, rejoined him and lay down in silence by his side. Below, in the bottom of a considerable valley, the short cut from Tonstall Hamlet wound downwards to the ferry. It was well beaten, and the eye followed it easy from point to point. Here it was bordered by open glades. There the forest closed upon it. Every hundred yards it ran beside an ambush. Far down the path, the sun shone on seven steel sallets, and from time to time, as the trees opened, Selden and his men could be seen riding briskly, still bent upon Sir Daniel's mission. The wind had somewhat fallen, but still tussled merrily with the trees, and, perhaps, had Appleyard been there, he would have drawn a warning from the troubled conduct of the birds. Now, Mark, Dick whispered, they be already well advanced into the wood. Their safety lieth rather in continuing forward. But see ye where this wide glade runneth down before us, and in the midst of it these two score trees make like an island. There were their safety, and they but come sound as far as that. 
I will make shift to warn them. But my heart misgiveth me. They are but seven against so many, and they but carry crossbows. The longbow, Jack, will have the uppermost ever. Meanwhile, Selden and his men still wound up the path, ignorant of their danger, and momentarily drew nearer hand. Once, indeed, they paused, drew into a group, and seemed to point and listen. But it was something from far away across the plain that arrested their attention. A hollow growl of cannon that came, from time to time, upon the wind, and told of great battle. It was worth the thought, to be sure, for if the voice of the big guns were thus become audible in Tunstall Forest, the fight must have rolled ever eastward, and the day, by consequence, gone sore against Sir Daniel and the Lords of the Dark Rose. But presently the little troop began again to move forward, and came next to a very open, heathy portion of the way, where but a single tongue of forest ran down to join the road. They were but just abreast of this when an arrow shone flying. One of the men threw up his arms, his horse reared, and both fell and struggled together in a mass. Even from where the boys lay, they could hear the rumour of the men's voices crying out. They could see the startled horses prancing, and, presently, as the troops began to recover from their first surprise, one fellow beginning to dismount. A second arrow from somewhat farther off glanced in a wide arc. A second rider bit the dust. The man who was dismounting lost hold upon the rein, and his horse fled galloping and dragged him by the foot along the road, bumping from stone to stone and battered by the fleeing hooves. The four who still kept the saddle instantly broke and scattered, one wheeled and rode, shrieking, towards the ferry. The other three, with loose rein and flying raiment, came galloping up the road from Tunstall. From every clump they passed an arrow sped. Soon a horse fell, but the rider found his feet and continued to pursue his comrades till a second shot dispatched him. Another man fell, then another horse. Out of the whole troop there was but one fellow left, and he on foot only, in different directions, the noise of the galloping of three riderless horses was dying fast into the distance. All this time, not one of the assailants had for a moment shown himself. Here and there along the path, horse or man rolled, 
undispatched in his agony, but no merciful enemy broke cover to put them from their pain. The solitary survivor stood bewildered in the road beside his fallen charger. He had come the length of that broad glade with the island of timber pointed out by Dick. He was not, perhaps, five hundred yards from where the boys lay hidden, and they could see him plainly, looking to and fro in deadly expectation. But nothing came, and the man began to pluck up his courage, and suddenly unslung and bent his bow. At the same time, by something in his action, Dick recognised Selden. At this offer of resistance from all about him in the covert of the woods, there went up the sound of laughter. A score of men, at least, for this was the very thickest of the ambush, joined in this cruel and untimely mirth. Then an arrow glanced over Selden's shoulder, and he leaped and ran a little back. Another dart struck quivering at his heel. He made for the cover. A third shaft leapt out right in his face and fell short in front of him. And then the laughter was repeated loudly, rising and re-echoing from different thickets. It was plain that his assailants were but baiting him, as men, in those days, baited the poor bull, or as the cat still trifles with the mouse. The skirmish was well over, farther down the road. A fellow in green was already calmly gathering the arrows, and now, in the evil pleasure of their hearts, they gave themselves the spectacle of their poor fellow sinner in his torture. Selden began to understand. He uttered a roar of anger, shouldered his crossbow, and sent a quarrel at a venture into the wood. Chance favoured him, for a slight cry responded. Then, throwing down his weapon, Selden began to run before him up the glade, and almost in a straight line for Dick and Matcham. The companions of the Black Arrow now began to shoot in earnest, but they were properly served. Their chance had passed. Most of them had now to shoot against the sun, and Selden, as he ran, bounded from side to side to baffle and deceive their armour. Best of all, by turning up the glade, he had defeated their preparations. There were no marksmen posted higher up than the one who he had just killed or wounded, and the confusion of the foresters' councils soon became apparent. A whistle sounded thrice, and then again twice. It was repeated from another quarter. The woods on either side 
became full of the sound of people bursting through the underwood, and a bewildered deer ran out in the open, stood for a second on three feet with nose in air, and then plunged again into the thicket. Selden still ran, bounding, ever and again. An arrow followed him, but still would miss. It began to appear as if he might escape. Dick had his bow armed, ready to support him. Even Matcham, forgetful of his interest, took sides at heart for the poor fugitive, and both lads glowed and trembled in the ardour of their hearts. He was within fifty yards of them when an arrow struck him and he fell. He was up again, indeed, upon the instant, but now he ran staggered, and, like a blind man, turned aside from his direction. Dick leaped to his feet and waved to him. Here, he cried, this way, here is help. Nay, run, fellow, run. But just then, a second arrow struck Selden in the shoulder, between the plates of his brigadine, and piercing through his jack, brought him, like a stone, to earth. Oh, the poor heart, cried Matcham, with clasped hands. And Dick stood petrified upon the hill, a mark of archery. Ten to one he had speedily been shot, for the foresters were furious with themselves, and taken unawares by Dick's appearance in the rear of their position. But instantly, out of a quarter of the wood, Surprisingly near the two lads, a stentorian voice arose, the voice of Ellis Duckworth. Hold, it roared, shoot not, take him alive, it is young Shelton, Harry's son. And immediately after, a shrill whistle sounded several times, and was again taken up and repeated farther off. The whistle, it appeared, was John Amendall's battle trumpet, by which he published his directions. Ah, foul fortune, cried Dick, we are undone. Swiftly, Jack, come swiftly. And the pair turned and ran back through the open pine clump that covered the summit of the hill. Chapter 6 To the Day's End It was, indeed, high time for them to run. On every side the company of the Black Arrow was making for the hill. Some, being better runners, or having open ground to run upon, had far outstripped the others, and were already close upon the goal. Some, following the valleys, had spread out to the right and left, and outflanked the lads on either side. Dick plunged into the nearest cover. 
It was a tall grove of oaks, firm underfoot and clear of underbrush, and as it lay downhill, they made good speed. There followed next a piece of open, which Dick avoided, holding to his left. Two minutes after, and the same obstacle arising, the lads followed the same course. Thus it followed that, while the lads, being bent continually to the left, drew nearer and nearer to the high broad and the river which they had crossed an hour or two before, the great bulk of their pursuers were leaning to the other hand and running towards Tunstall. The lads paused to breathe. There was no sound of pursuit. Dick put his ear to the ground, and still there was nothing. But the wind, to be sure, still made a turmoil in the trees, and it was hard to make certain. On again, said Dick, and, tired as they were, and Matcham limping with his injured foot, they pulled themselves together and once more pelted down the hill. Three minutes later, they were breasting through a low thicket of evergreen. High overhead, the tall trees made a continuous roof of the foliage. It was a pillared grove, as high as a cathedral, and except for the hollies among which the lads were struggling, open and smoothly swarded. On the other side, pushing through the last fringe of evergreen, they blundered forth again into the open twilight of the grove. Stand, cried a voice, and there, between the huge stems, not fifty feet before them, they beheld a stout fellow in green, sore-blown with running, who instantly drew an arrow to the head and covered them. Matcham stopped with a cry, but Dick, without a pause, ran straight upon the forester, drawing his dagger as he went. The other, whether he was startled by the daring of the onslaught, or whether he was hampered by his orders, did not shoot. He stood wavering, and before he had time to come to himself, Dick bounded at his throat and sent him sprawling backwards on the turf. The arrow went one way and the bow another with a sounding twang. The disarmed forester grappled his assailant, but the dagger shone and descended twice. Then came a couple of groans, and then Dick rose to his feet again, and the man lay motionless, stabbed to the heart. On, said Dick, and he once more pelted forward, Matcham trailing in the rear. To say the truth, they made but poor speed of it by now, labouring dismally as they ran, and catching for their breath like fish. Matcham had a cruel stitch, and his head swam, and as for Dick, 
His knees were like lead, but they kept up the form of running with undiminished courage. Presently they came to the end of the grove. It stopped abruptly, and there, a few yards before them, was the high road from Risingham to Shawbury, lying at this point between two even walls of forest. At the sight Dick paused, and as soon as he stopped running, he became aware of a confused noise, which rapidly grew louder. It was at first like the rush of a very high gust of wind, but soon it became more definite and resolved itself into the galloping of horses, and then, in a flash, a whole company of men-at-arms came driving round the corner, swept before the lads, and were gone again upon the instant. They rode as for their lives, in complete disorder. Some of them were wounded. Riderless horses galloped at their side with bloody saddles. They were plainly fugitives from the great battle. The noise of their passage had scarce begun to die away towards Sorby before fresh hooves came echoing in their wake, and another deserter clattered down the road, this time a single rider, and, by his splendid armour, a man of high degree. Close after him there followed several baggage wagons, fleeing at an ungainly canter, the drivers flailing at the horse as if for life. These must have run early in the day, but their cowardice was not to save them, for just before they came abreast of where the lads stood wondering, a man in hacked armour, and seemingly beside himself with fury, overtook the wagons and with the truncheon of a sword, began to cut the drivers down. Some leaped from their places and plunged into the wood, the others he sabred as they sat, cursing them the while for cowards in a voice that was scarce human. All this time the noise in the distance had continued to increase, the rumble of carts, the clatter of horses, the cries of men, a great confused rumour, came swelling on the wind, and it was plain that the root of a whole army was pouring, like an indignation, down the hill. Dick stood sombre. He had meant to follow the highway till the turn for Hollywood, and now he had to change his plan. But all above, he had recognised the colours of Earl Risingham, and he knew that the battle had gone finally against the Rose of Lancaster. Had Sir Daniel joined, and was he now a fugitive and ruined? Or had he deserted to the side of York, and was he forfeit to honour? It was an ugly choice. Come, he said sternly and turning on his heel, he began to walk forward through the grove, with Matcham limping in his rear. 
For some time they continued to tread the forest in silence. It was now growing late. The sun was setting in the plain beyond Ketley. The treetops overhead glowed golden, but the shadows had begun to grow darker and the chill of the night to fall. If there were anything to eat, cried Dick suddenly, pausing as he spoke. Matcham sat down and began to weep. Ye can weep for your own supper, but when it was to save men's lives, your heart was hard enough, said Dick contemptuously. You have seven deaths upon your conscience, Master John. I'll ne'er forgive you that. Conscience, cried Matcham, looking fiercely up. Mine, and ye have the man's red blood upon your dagger, and wherefore did ye slay him, the poor soul? He drew his arrow, but he let not fly. He held you in his hand and spared you. Tis as brave to kill a kitten as a man that not defends himself. Dick was struck dumb. I slew him bare. I ran me in upon his bow, he cried. It was a coward blow, returned Matcham. Ya but a lout and bully, Master Dick. Ye but abuse advantages. Let there come a stronger. We will see you truckle at his boot. Ye care not for vengeance neither, for your father's death that goes unpaid, and his poor ghost that clamoureth for justice. But if there come but a poor creature in your hand that lacketh skill and strength, and would befriend you, down she shall go. Dick was too furious to observe that she. Marry, he cried, and here is news. Of any two the one will still be stronger. The better man throweth the worst. The worst is well served. Ye deserve a belting, Master Matcham, for your ill guidance and unthankfulness to me would, and what ye deserve ye shall have. And Dick, who, even in his angriest temper, still preserved the appearance of composure, began to unbuckle his belt. Here shall be your supper, he said grimly. Matcham had stopped his tears. He was as white as a sheet, but he looked Dick steadily in the face and never moved. Dick took a step, swinging the belt. Then he paused, embarrassed by the large eyes and the thin, weary face of his companion. His courage began to subside. Say ye were in the wrong, then, he said, lamely. Nay, said Matcham, I was in the right. Come, cruel, I be lame, I be weary, I resist not, I ne'er did thee hurt. Come, beat me, coward. Dick raised the belt at this last provocation, but Matcham winced and drew himself together with so cruel an apprehension that his heart failed him yet again. 
the strap fell by his side, and he stood irresolute, feeling like a fool. A plague upon thee, shrew, he said, and ye be so feeble of hand, ye should keep the closer guard upon your tongue, but I'll be hanged before I beat you, and he put on his belt again. Beat you I will not, he continued, but forgive you, never. I knew ye not, ye were my master's enemy. I lent you my horse, my dinner ye have eaten. Ye have called me a man o' wood, a coward, and a bully. Nay, by the mass, the measure is filled and runneth over. Tis a great thing to be weak, I trow. Ye can do your worst, yet shall none punish you. Ye may steal a man's weapons in the hour of need. Yet may the man not take his own again. Ye are weak, forsooth. Nay, then, if one cometh charging at you with a lance, and crieth he is weak, he must let him pierce your body through. Tut, fool words. And yet ye beat me not, returned Matcham. Let be, said Dick. Let be. I will instruct you. Ye have been ill-natured, methinks, and yet ye have the makings of some good, and, beyond all question, saved me from the river. Nay, I had forgotten it. I am as thankless as thyself. But, come, let us on, and we be for Hollywood this night. I, or tomorrow early we had best set forward speedily. But though Dick had talked himself back into his usual good humour, Matcham had forgiven him nothing. His violence, the recollection of the forester whom he had slain, above all, the vision of the appraised belt, were things not easily to be forgotten. I will thank you for the form's sake said Matcham, but, in sooth, good master Shelton, I had liever find my way alone. Here is a wide wood, prithee, let each choose his path. I owe you a dinner and a lesson. Fare ye well. Nay, cried Dick, if that be your tune, so be it, and a plague be with you. Each turned aside, and they began walking off severely, with no thought of the direction, intent solely on their quarrel. But Dick had not gone ten paces ere his name was called, and Matcham came running after. Dick, he said, it were unmannerly to part so coldly. Here is my hand, and my heart with it for all that wherein you have so excellently served and helped me, not for the form, but for the heart, I thank you. Fare ye right well. Well, lad, returned Dick, taking the hand which was offered him. Good speed to you, if speed you may, but I misdoubt it shrewdly, 
ye are too disputatious. So then they separated for the second time, and presently it was Dick who was running after Matcham. Here, he said, take my crossbow, shall not go unarmed. A crossbow, said Matcham. Nay, boy, I have neither the strength to bend nor yet the skill to aim with it. It were no help to me, good boy, but yet I thank you. The night had now fallen, and under the trees they could no longer read each other's face. I will go some little way with you, said Dick. The night is dark. I would fain leave you on a path, at least. My mind misgiveth me. Ye are likely to be lost. Without any more words, he began to walk forward, and the other once more followed him. The blackness grew thicker and thicker. Only here and there, in open places, they saw the sky, dotted with small stars. In the distance, the noise of the roar of the Lancastrian army still continued to be faintly audible, but with every step they left it farther in the rear. At the end of half an hour of silent progress, they came forth upon a broad patch of heathy open. It glimmered in the light of the stars, shaggy with fern and islanded with clumps of yew, and here they paused and looked upon each other. Ye are weary, Dick said. Nay, I am so weary, answered Matcham, that methinks I could lie down and die. I hear the chidding of the river, returned Dick. Let us go so far forth, for I am sore athirst. The ground sloped down gently, and, sure enough, in the bottom, they found a little murmuring river, running among the willows. Here they threw themselves down together by the brink, and putting their mouths to the level of the starry pool, they drank their fill. Dick, said Matcham, it may not be, I can no more. I saw a pit as we came down, said Dick, Let us lie down therein and sleep. Nay, but with all my heart, cried Matcham. The pit was sandy and dry. A shock of brambles hung upon one hedge and made a partial shelter. And there the two lads lay down, keeping close together for the sake of warmth, their quarrel all forgotten. And soon sleep fell upon them like a cloud, and under the dew and stars they rested peacefully.